Welcome to Valley Christian Church. We hope you enjoy this message, and we would love for you to join us on Sunday mornings at 1030. We're located at 432 East Pleasant in Tulare. After listening to this message, take a moment to browse our website for current and upcoming events. It is our prayer that ultimately you learn to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jonah is not going to go to Nineveh. We've talked about this, and and this is very different from many of the other Old Testament prophets uh, who argue with God. Most of them argue with God, but they'll still obey God. Where Jonah, he just figures, I'm not even going to argue. He just takes off and goes the other direction. It doesn't take him long to decide to disobey the Lord. Um, you know, because really his intense hatred of the Ninevites. And we talked a little bit about that. But it's incredible to me when a mature Christian is, is really exposed as being a, a hater of a, a certain group of people or a certain uh, type of person. Yet at the same time, I think we all have some sort of uh, prejudice in our own lives. You know, Jonah's uh, prejudice might have been well-founded. He had, he had great reasons to hate the Assyrians. They would be literally compared to the Nazi Germany um, of the 1940s in a way that they, they really treated their enemies and treated the countries that they, they overtook and, and all of that. He had every reason to hate them, yet still God wanted him to go and preach to them. And he was supposed to obey. Then in verse 4 it says, The Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. And in the following verses we talked about how you know these experienced sailors reacted. And this storm wasn't just bad. I mean, this was a bad storm. They're throwing their money literally overboard, all their cargo overboard to save themselves. And in verse uh, you know, 15, they're trying to figure out, okay, who did what? Uh, what God has offended? Who, you know, who's the one that, that has caused this great you know, calamity upon us? And they rolled the dice the way they did it. They were superstitious people, so they rolled the dice and it landed on Jonah. And they said, well, what should we do to you, Jonah? And he just says, throw me overboard. And we talked a little bit about how he would rather die than go. And in verse 17, we see the Lord provided a great fish. And we see God's perfect timing throughout this book. And we talked about the provisions last week of unexpected provisions. Provisions that we wouldn't, wouldn't really think about in our own lives. You know, we think of money, we think of family, we think of health, we think of food, we think of those type of provisions. We don't think of a great storm. We don't think about a fish swallowing us. We don't think about those type of provisions. You know, after the Lord provided the great fish, he ended up uh, in this ocean where he's sinking down. And then all of a sudden he, he's like swallowed. And all of a sudden he's like in this slimy, smelly, slippery, I mean, did I say smelly place? So in chapter 2, it's all about the strange prayer meeting Jonah had with the Lord. And, and he's riding up and down and up and down. I can imagine him just sloshing all over the place. And in the middle of all this, he kind of comes to a senses. He doesn't really understand what's going on and where he's at. And he, he sings this praise to the Lord. He starts to reconnect with God. And for those of us who have reconnected with God years after uh, not following Him, some of us could tell of strange circumstances in our own lives where it was almost like a storm that brought us back to it. And Jonah is in the same place. And, you know, God is asking Jonah to return to Him, to reveal, you know, uh, to, to reveal Himself. To God, to open up his life to God, to have, a, in a sense, a revival. 
And Jonah responds and cries out to the Lord. And it's, it's really neat what he says here because, you know, he says, I called out to the, to the Lord and you actually listened to me. It's almost like, I can't even believe that, that, that you're big enough, God. I can't even believe that, that you would even answer me when this place that I don't even know, all I know is I'm sloshing around in this slimy place. You brought me out of this pit. And in chapter 2, verse 8, is one of the most powerful verses in the Bible. And, you know, it's one of those, uh, Jonah's not something that we normally, uh, you know, like memorize. But it's one of the most powerful verses. He says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. This is just so powerful. It's so visual. Any worthless idol, it could be a relationship. It could be a habit or a friendship or even a personal issue that you've just grabbed a hold of and you just won't let go. And God's sitting there going, I want you to cling to me and you can't cling to me and that idol at the same time. And the Lord says, let go of that and grab onto my grace. But we just hold on to that idol with all of our might for some, some reason. Some of us have found that clinging to that job or relationship has really not been worth it. It's almost like a, a security blanket. And once we let go of it, we start to understand that, you know, you, you, we start to find God's grace. This week we were talking about security blankets because one of the things Lisa's mom used to do for, for all the kids was, was make a blanket. And they were calling home to, to Texas and talking to a few people at the old church and uh, you know, some of them goes, you know, I receive, I remember those blankets. Either I received one or my child received one. It's, you know, we grab a hold of that. But it, as an adult, if you still have your security blanket, you know, it's nice to look at, but it's not going to cover you. It's not going to fit you. It's the same thing. We can't cling to those things. In a sense, we mature. We grow up. It's usually when we think that all is lost. And we're sinking down into the deepest, you know, the, the deepest pit we could ever imagine in our lives. And we think it's over, when really it's not over at all. Now, you would think that the, the greatest repentance stories in the Bible would involve unbelievers or pagans or, you know, you know pagans who, who maybe have repented. And today we're, we're going to actually get one to one of those stories. I mean, the whole city of Nineveh. They literally repent and recognize the true God for the first time. It's an amazing story. However, the greatest repentance stories in the Bible involve people who are, who, you know, supposed to have been following the Lord all along. The greatest repentance stories of scriptures are believers who have repented. And this has really got to become a part of our church today. To call believers to repentance. To recognize those things in our lives and say, this is not the direction I should be going. This is not something I want in my life. This is a worthless idol I'm clinging to. Help me get rid of this. And rely on one another to do that. See, if we start repenting of those things, if we start coming back to God, if we start getting rid of those worthless idols, then we're really prepared to win this world for Christ. Much of the Scripture is about believers who have blown it and repented. Jonah inside the fish. Moses on the backside of the desert. David alone in his basement of his palace, crying out to God saying, I am sorry for what I've done. We see Peter on the shore of the, you know, of the Sea of Galilee, 
Christ asking him, do you love me? The reality is that repentance stories in the scriptures are the believers that are coming back to God. Well, let's jump into uh, almost chapter 3. Chapter 2, verse 10, it says, here it says, And the Lord commanded a fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Now, last week I showed you a video of the ocean. So this week I thought I'd show you a video of this. Okay, maybe not. But you can memorize this one also. See, Jonah hasn't eaten for three days, and this is where my mind's been going. Three days and three nights. I bet he was hungry. He probably went out and had some clam chowder. Or maybe a tuna fish sandwich or oysters on the half shell. You know, I bet you this guy did not eat seafood the rest of his life. I mean, he was seafood. I mean, it's quite a sight. It gets funnier and funnier, at least in my mind. When you think about what he looked, uh, what he looked like, you know, he would have lost all his hair from the gastric juices. I mean, think about how, you know, you know, you know the stomach juices, I mean, he would have been hairless. You know, these fish didn't chew. So the acid would have had him looking pretty bad. Jonah had been digested for three days. Before the fish decided, I can't digest this one. He's not the same man that went in there. You know, this guy is bald now. I mean, that's punishment enough. But there's other accounts that we talked about last week, uh, you know, that, that uh, where, where the men just literally, uh, you know, 1891, a couple other stories, they literally came out hairless. Not only that, their skin was bleached yellow and brown and, and white and, you know, three days of digestion here. This guy must have been, you know, he must have looked like a hairless map of Asia or something. And I also have to wonder, were there any witnesses to Jonah being thrown back up on the beach, if you want to call it that? Little projectile, you know, how did it happen? Okay, no. But wouldn't that be incredible? You have your family down, you're, you're, you're going for a nice day on the beach, and hey mom, there's a big well coming up, and you go over there and look at it, and all of a sudden this man comes rolling out? I mean, this, you know, had to be amazing. And Jonah is literally, well, figurative, more figurative than literally, but reborn. And in chapter 3, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it, to the, uh, proclaim it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. This is pretty incredible. Because we don't know how much time elapsed here. We don't know if immediately upchucked on the beach, still gross, still smelly, and God comes, Jonah, you know, or whatever voice you use, however he did it, go to Nineveh. We don't know if it happened then, six months down the line, six years down the line. We don't know that. The story doesn't, you know, it kind of alludes maybe a little later that it happened a little quicker than we think, but we're not really sure. But the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now, you could really go with either direction and, and find some meaning here. It could be it'd been there that he, he was laying there. And the Lord came right to him and said, and Jonah's like, well, I need to clean up before I go. Well, where I, there's the ocean right there. And he's kind of going, okay, I need to go clean up, but the fish is out there. I don't know if I want to go back into the water or not. And then he starts hiking like 500 miles because that's the direction he would have to go. But it's, impo- it's also uh, possible that it did not happen immediately. He gets up, you know, cleans himself off. He goes back home. And he doesn't hear from the Lord right off. 
God saved me, his thought is. But I doubt that God will ever want to use me again. I certainly can't serve him again. I'm a failure for ministry. I just can't do it again. God has thrown me out in a sense. He saved me, and that was God's grace. But anything else beyond that, I'm not really quite sure. And these words have to be encouraging for anybody who's been in that position. The Lord, then the Lord, or the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. God still has Jonah's number. God has not abandoned the man. And you know what? As I sat during this week with this, I mean, it was a crazy week, and I was reminded of one thing. God gives second chances over and over again. And we're a testimony to that. How many of you sitting here today got it right the first time? Yeah, you understand? We're all in the same boat as it is. How many of you needed a second chance? Okay, maybe a third chance, a fourth chance. You're like, okay, once you get to 52, and maybe I can put my hand down. We all need more chances than just one chance. I think of how many times I've blown it and how many times I've succeeded. I, I don't like those odds. But our God is a God of second chances. And it's not just with Jonah. This is his style. This is his personality. And it goes all the way back to Genesis, all the way through to us. God giving a chance after chances. You know, God says to Adam and Eve, don't do what? Don't eat eat out of that tree. You can eat anything else in his garden, but don't eat out of this tree. What do they do? They eat out of that tree. And God still gave them a second chance. Abraham. God gives him a wife. He goes to Egypt, and what does he do? He's afraid, so he tells him, Oh, this isn't my wife, because it was customary for the, the, you know, the kings to kill the husband, or the, whatever you want to, the, the pharaohs, to, to kill the husband and take the wife. Oh, this is my sister. God's sitting there going, That's not right. This is your wife. I'm sure that uh, after he got back and God gave him a second chance and all that, I'm sure his wife was in a great mood. You told them I was your sister? What were you thinking? And then he tells them, I'm going to give you a child, and they will be, you know, a father of many nations. Trust me on this. And he goes and has a child by another woman. He's tired of waiting on God, and we have Ishmael. And it leads us to today, you just watch the news, and you know what's going on with the Muslim world versus the Christian world. It goes all the way back to then. The whole conflict in the Middle East would have not happened if Abraham would have trusted the Lord at this point. Huge sin. But does God stop using him? No. David. God's sitting there going, I call you a man after my own heart. I mean, he teaches him from when he was a little boy. This is a man who defeats a giant on behalf of of Israel. Only David can uh, can calm Saul's heart. And David begins to lead Israel. You know, you know God is a, a king who will finally follow him, will lead Israel in that direction. What does David do? He kills his best friend and takes his wife. It goes on and on and on. People who fail God, and then for some reason God gives them another chance. Go to the New Testament. You know, the obvious illustration is Peter. Don't we all love Peter? I mean, we love to laugh at Peter and all that. You know, you just got to love the guy. But there's also others. There's John Mark. Raised in the church, showed a, you know, a lot of maturity and 
travels with the Apostle Paul, and Paul really needed him with his ailments and, and different things going on. And, and John Mark literally abandons the Apostle Paul in the middle of the ministry. You know, he's homesick. He misses his mom. He goes back home. Paul totally, just totally writes him off for a while because Jesus has plans. And John Mark is used again and again and again. So, so Paul has to come back and say, well, I guess God is using it, using you. Even though you really blew it, God is still using you. You see, here's the thing. We appreciate this in regards uh, to God and, and, and people when it's us. We, we appreciate it when, when God you know, gives us a second chance. But we don't like it when He does it for others, do we? Oh, they need to pay more. They, they need to be punished more. Well, after what they did, they need more. If I was God, I mean, I would have saved Jonah, but I wouldn't use him again. If I was God, I would have rescued Jonah. He blew it, but he's been a good prophet up till now. I mean, look at all the great work he did in Israel, turning the Israelites back toward him. That's a good job. But when I go back to him and say, arise, go to Nineveh, I have a job for you. No, I would find somebody else. I, I wouldn't call the same guy. Hey, I need you again. No, Jonah proved himself to be totally unreliable. And he was not going to be a part you know, of the ministry to the Assyrians as far as I would be concerned. But God needs to get somebody who loves the Assyrians. That's how I would think. Why is he calling Jonah? Why? Because God is God. He calls who he pleases. And even though, we blow, you know, even though we totally blow it sometimes, he still calls us. He forgives us. He is a God of, of second chances who isn't like us. You know what? No one knew that they blew it more than Jonah did. I mean, Jonah was disgusted with Jonah. Have you ever been so disgusted with yourself? I'm sure that every time Jonah, from this point on, saw his reflection, he knew he'd blown it. Have you ever not wanted to look at yourself in the mirror? You say, man, I, I can't believe I did that. Or, I can't believe I did it again. I did it again. I didn't learn my lesson. Same relationship. Different name, different face, but I did it again. Or I let somebody down again. Or I lied again. Or I got drunk again. Or I took drugs again. And, you know, no one knew better than Jonah about this. I did it again. And the Amplified, I think, had uh, uh, the right word here. It it says, arise to Jonah. So we kind of get the sense maybe it was the same time, but it could have been later. God says to Jonah, arise, get up, pal. It's time for you to go. I can imagine Jonah's reaction. You've got to be kidding to me. I mean, can't you see you've got the wrong guy? God, we've already been through this once. And God says, no, it is you, Jonah. Come on, get up, get moving. Now, the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians explains to us why God is like this. Paul, who, you know, who also needed second chances in life, said in Ephesians 2.4, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. 
And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And not this from ourselves. It is a gift from God, our gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Prepared in advance for us to do. The Apostle Paul explains several reasons why God is like this. First of all, He loves us. That's it. Totally. He loves us. And like a parent with a rebellious child, a teenager who says, I'm going to do it my way. And, and you're sitting there thinking, man, as they enter into adulthood, you, it's obvious they're going to lead a painful life because of their actions. Because they refuse to learn a lesson. And yet you know, you know you will always love them. You might get angry with them, but you will always love them. And this is even more with our Heavenly Father. Secondly, you know, he, he likes to show off His abundance of His grace. This is God, how He is. He just likes to, to use you to show off the abundance of grace to others. The Ninevites needed a preacher that, that had also needed grace because they needed a lot of grace in their life for what they did to so many different nations. They were going to need it. So God allowed Jonah to go through this rebellion. And He says, hey, you're not perfect. I understand that. But you're perfect for this job. Look at yourself now. You are the perfect testimony of my grace to the Ninevites. Go tell these people how gracious I was to you. And this is the case for us as well. Some of us feel like, you know, we're disqualified from any type of ministry. You know, I mean, let's get it out of the pastoral realm. You know, we think of, you know, qualified for ministry, we think of pastor a lot of times. No, just serving. Many of us feel like, man, the sin of my life, there's no way. I'm disqualified. That's it. I can come and sit, and that's what I can do. God will, God will teach me that way, but I can't do anything else. But instead, it prepared you for ministry. See, I think that's one of the things that we often forget about. The things that happen in our life prepare us for the next step in life. God can use the things. Either something that hit us out of left field or it was a path that we were going down that was a wrong path, and we finally turn around and God says, you know what, I'm still going to use that. I can use these lessons that you're learning in life for my good, for my ministry. Because then we start getting off our Pharisaic high horse, and we begin to minister the love of the Holy Spirit, how He would want us to do it. You won't preach at them. You won't sit there and point your finger at them. You won't scream at them. Hey, you need to be more like me. Look at me. I'm living a great life. You need to be more like me. Instead, you say, hey, listen, look at me. I rebelled from God, and this is what God did for me. I don't understand why God did this. I've sinned. Look at my scars. Look at what I've done. Look at my skin. I have no hair left. But you know what? God saved me. And you know what else? He can also save you. Now that's true ministry. When we go out there into this world and do that, the Lord says, hey, I can use you now. Because now I know you won't take credit for what I've done. Because look at you. You certainly can't take credit. 
before you were prophet of Israel and thought you were kind of hot stuff, the chosen and all that, you know, and I called you to another race and, and you thought you were too good to do that. But now we're back on track. You are a humble person, the Lord's telling him. Do you know it's, it's really hard to, for God to use a prideful person? This is why we need to be, you know, humble ourselves. We need to kind of go to God, you know, with really a perspective of, of who we are and who God is. And admit where we came from. Admit that, you know, there's rebellion and sin in our lives or our, our lack of relying on Him. And that when we repent and allow God to do it His way, this is when He can start using us. And this is the last reason God, you know, does this. In Ephesians 2.10, you know, Paul says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared for in advance for us to do. He created us to do good work. The word workmanship is such a great word, uh, word here in the Greek. It's, it's the word poeme, and I like to pronounce it poem. You guys pronounce it differently, that's fine. But we're God's poem. We're God's workmanship. He developed it. We're God's work of art. Did you know you're God's work of art? I mean, look around at each other. Doesn't God have wonderful sense of humor? No, but seriously, we are God's work of art. God makes great art, and that's you. It's not bad art, because God doesn't make junk art. You're God's work of art. And we're kind of like, well, no, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, 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 no. God wouldn't do this. The Word of God says that you are. You know, God lets Jonah go through this, and He still uses him. You know, if there was other people on that beach that day, they would swear to you that Jonah was not God's work of art. And God would say, yes, yes, he is. This man that is recovering from rebellion, this man is a man that I will use. It may not look like it now, but I will wait and see. See, our our mistakes in life may leave scars, but that doesn't disqualify us from serving Him. Scars are are beautiful to the Lord because what they represent, they represent healing in our lives. What is sad is when we see a church full of perfect people that that are serving because God asks us to drop that mask and to be real with one another. And start, you know, in a sense, comparing scars. Hey, did you see this? Oh, man, let me tell you a story about this time. God saved me. Let me tell you that story. Verse 6, or, or go on, it says, Then the word of the Lord in chapter 3, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Now, now go to Nineveh. Or, now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. Now, until 1845, uh, uh, a reason why a lot of people thought this story was just a myth was because they didn't even know that Nineveh existed until 1845. They actually found it at that point, uh, at that point under a hill. A guy looked at a hill and said, that's not really a hill. It looks like it's you know, what they call a tell where, where you know, a city gets built upon another city upon another city and it slowly kind of develops into a hill until you know, the dust just kind of covers it up if people leave it. And Nineveh, it was so massive it took years to under, uh, uncover. In fact, it was 60 miles, 62 miles in circumference. It was actually three cities kind of uh, banked into one, as, as Pastor Brown would know. It's kind of like the, the Bay Area. You have many, multiple cities kind of all in one area. It had somewhere between 600,000 and 1 million adults. 
The walls were 100 foot high and, and, and 45 foot wide. In the inner city, there's 100 acres covered in the middle of the city under different roofing systems. So you could walk and not get wet. 100 acres of it. Palaces and libraries and, and temples to the god, uh, god Dagon. There was a you know, zoo of exotic animals from all over the world. Sennacherib you know, built a monument to show the, the world the power of the Assyrians. It was like Hitler was trying to do for Berlin in the 1940s. Huge theaters that could sit 200,000 people for games. And here Jonah was walking through the city, no doubt intimidated a little bit, yet he had a job to do. He is in, enemies, you know, in the enemy's territory, preaching to them the destruction of the city. Verse 4, it says, On the first day Jonah started into the city, he proclaimed 40 more days, and Nineveh, Nineveh would be overturned. Now, Jonah, as a prophet of God, would understand that the number 40 was very significant. It's a very biblical number. It's a, it's a time for testing and, and, you know, testing and trial before judgment. His message was really severely lacking in grace, though, don't you, don't you think? He doesn't even really mention God. 40 more days? And Nineveh will be overturned. The word overturned is, is a very interesting word. It can be either positive or negative. You know how we, we take somebody says something and we take it either one way or the other sometimes? Well, the word overturned here is very interesting. Because it could mean in 40 days, hey, this place is going to be totally destroyed. Overturned is in wrecked. Or it could be in 40 days something is going to happen where everything's so drastically changed in this city, you won't even recognize it. Now, because we know the story, we know which one the God was talking about, but we also know which one Jonah was thinking about as he was going through as we start reading the story. And it did take 40 days for this to happen. Look what happened in verse 5. It says, The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. It doesn't say believed in God. It says believed God. Those are two different things. Verse 6, it says, When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation to Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Now, we would automatically think, this is just kind of weird, and it is kind of weird. But not even the animals could eat or drink for three days? These guys were like totally connected with their animals, the way they worship different things and stuff. I mean, they, I guess they're their first environmentalist or something. I don't know. But it goes on, it says, Do not let them eat or drink, but let, uh, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Now that would have been fun trying to put them on all the animals, sackcloth. <laughs> let everyone call urgently on God. I mean, I used to try to put a, put a sack on a, on a, I mean, to put a sock on a cat's head. What do they do? They run backwards. Until they hit something, then they turn, they keep going. So my cat didn't like that. I can imagine trying to do this to all the animals. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Would have said, verse 8, But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them, give, let them give up their evil ways. Now this should have been Jonah's message. But this is the king's message. The king that was against the world, pretty much. But who's preaching it? Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from the fierce anger so that we will not perish. They had no promise of grace. They're just hoping here. They're just like, you know, 
They're taking a shot. They're just taking a chance here. It says in verse 10, When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, He had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction He had threatened. This is incredible. There's just a couple of things that I saw here. First of all, repentance was their idea. Nobody had to tell these guys to repent. You kind of get the picture that, that Jonah walked through the city with a sign, you know, the, the A-frame sign over his head that says, Repent, the, time, you know, the end of the world is near, or something like that. The time has come. The end is near. And based on, you know, upon how he looked, they might listen. But he doesn't even use the word repent. Repentance was their idea. No one had to tell them that they were evil. They already understood that they were evil. As soon as the Holy Spirit started moving through the place, they just knew. And it goes on here. And it, well, in fact, in, in Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8, they didn't know that God was like this. But this is what it says in Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, or destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of their evil, then I will relent and no longer inflict on, on it the disaster I had planned. They didn't even know this, and yet this is exactly what they did. Now, why does God do this? He's God, and He has a right to do this. But I think it's a really cool idea that it was theirs. Secondly, they were ready to repent. If you go back and read a little bit of the history of of this nation and stuff, you'd find out that Sennacherib had built a, a beautiful city, but it started falling apart. Natural disasters. In fact, at one point, a huge flood came down, and they were kind of protected by the uh, by a huge river right there, and it overflowed its bank and and went underneath the wall, and literally the wall just came tumbling down. So their enemies thought, "Hey, this is a good time to attack." So they attacked the city. So a lot of turmoil was going on, and and the stuff that was going on. Many scholars believe that this was happening at the same time as Jonah was going through the city, earthquake all around, famine, people were dying. You know what? Nineveh was ready to hear. Hey, what do we have to lose in a sense? Now, the other thing, uh, the other thing that I think was Jonah's appearance and story. I think it really played into this. The Ninevites worshipped the god Dagon. And Dagon was a fish god. He was half fish and half man. Okay, so you have your city falling apart. And you worship a god that's half fish and half man. And a man comes into your city, and his reputation says that this man came literally right out of a fish's mouth. And look at him. I mean, you can see something drastic happen to him. These people were ready to hear what God you know, had to say. And I think that same truth holds for us now. People are ready to, to hear the truth. All it takes is somebody's life who has who really fallen apart for them to be able to say, I need something. And we should be there ready to say, I have that something. It's God. It's God of the universe. So the greatest miracle of this book is that the whole city turned to God. Not really Jonah and the well. God used Jonah and the well, but the greatest miracle of this book was the whole city just literally turning to God. After one day, a city starts to repent. Now, what's interesting is when you contrast this to, you know, the contrast of Nineveh's repentance with Israel's stubbornness. 
Israel had prophet after prophet after prophet, and it still did not repent. God's people, God provided somebody to say, what you're doing is wrong, what you're doing is sin, and they still did not turn back to God. To these guys, one prophet, one day, they already start to return to God. This bald, albino guy that just stinks, that has a bad attitude. His sermon is way too short for any preacher that I've ever heard. Repent. You know, this is the same as when Jesus was alive. Miracle after miracle after miracle. And the religious leaders come to him and they say what? Show us a sign. Hello? Have you not seen the sign? And then what does he say? I'll give you the sign. The sign of Jonah. He was in the fish three days and, and three nights. So will the Son of Man. See, the, the preacher in me wants to extrapolate and say, well, America, or, or to say Israel is America in this story. One good preacher after another. I mean, we've had some wonderful preachers in this, in this world here in America. No repentance. But really, I think we're Nineveh. The more I thought about it, we live in a wicked generation of people. Billy Graham once said, if God doesn't judge America, he will have to apologize. He will have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. I agree with that. People are ready to repent. All they need to hear about is your scars and how God's grace and mercy covers you. They are ready. Is there anyone here today who needs to repent? Because God wants to use us. He does. He really does want to use you. All he needs is a heart that's ready. And it begins with with repentance. Maybe it's something huge and you don't want to tell anybody. You're just like, okay, no one needs to know about this one. And that's okay. Tell God. I mean, he already knows. But maybe it's something small that, that has stood in your way all these years. Whatever it is, are you ready to repent because He is ready to use you? The greatest stories in the Bible are about believers returning to God. I would say that there's some in this room, some of us, who need to repent and return to God. You know, you're totally on fire at one point and then something happened. Something out of left field, Something maybe, maybe you ran straight toward it. I don't know. Something happened, all of a sudden you find yourself... I'm really not connecting with the Lord. I do know one thing. God has plans for our lives. And if you refuse to repent, then don't ask Him to bless your life. For some reason, we, we seem to think that we just, we pray to God and ask Him to bless us, bless us, bless, bless us. I'm not going to follow your ways. I'm not going to do the things you want me to do, but bless me, please. And we think that works. I don't know why we think that works. I've been guilty of that just as much as you have. We're sitting there going, God, bless me. And God's sitting there going, I want to, but look at how you're living. Turn back to me. Are you ready to repent? Yes or no? Is there anyone here today saying, Lord, I'm rebelling from you. I recognize that. I want to repent and I want to turn back to a life that you have planned for me. If that's the case, I want to pray for you. I also want to pray for those that feel like the Ninevites. You're maybe not even sure why you're here. I don't even know why I showed up today. But the Holy Spirit is, is you know, making you uncomfortable and you're sitting there going, okay, I need something. 
And God has brought you here to repent. Time to say, I'm going to stop my evil ways. That's what I want to pray for you today. Let's pray. Lord, there's so many times in our lives that we don't recognize evil. We don't recognize the things that we do that are against you. We just kind of ignore them or we don't even know. But there are other times, Lord, when we absolutely 100% know what we're doing is wrong. Lord, I pray for those that are out there sitting there going, I know what I'm doing is wrong. I pray for their repentance, Lord. I pray that, or I thank you that you will accept that repentance. I thank you for loving us so much that you would send a great fish. You would, you would send a storm. You would send something that we would look at and say is destructive in our life. Yet what you're trying to do is show us grace and mercy. And I pray, Lord, that when we turn back to you, that we see and feel that your arms are open and ready and willing for us. Lord, I pray for those that have been, in a sense, chewed up or swallowed and thrown back out, Lord. We feel like you'll never use me for ministry again. You'll never allow me to serve. You'll never allow me to show your grace to other people. I pray, Lord, that you give them an overwhelming feeling that they have a plan and a purpose in your life. They have a plan and a purpose in your, in your grand scheme of things that they can be used again. Why? Because you're just that kind of God. And the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you in the middle of, of your repentance. His face will never hide from you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.